Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Roll it. So, uh, this morning... Oh, I'm sorry. Good morning, Mike. Hey, but a good... Yeah, we're... Oh, <laughs> Not a good morning anymore. <laughs> Forgive me. Good morning, Mike. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'd like to talk about contempt. Uh, we've talked about it a couple of times in, in, on this before, but we've just hinted at it. And I think even the first time we talked about it, I didn't really have a clear definition of, of contempt. I had heard the word before, but I definitely had meditated on it or spent time, uh, just thinking through that. But where it started to come up for me multiple times now is, is actually seeing, seeing this, this idea of contempt, which my understanding of contempt is, is looking at others as if they're beneath you or below or, or worthless. Um, and, and so it's, it's related to pride. I think it's related to anger, but I've, I've seen it in a lot of situations where I think we've started to, as, as, as Christians, we'll throw pride and anger in place of contempt. Um, but also just in, in the, the world as a whole, when we see, uh, a lot of the, the political, um, distrust today and a lot of the, the political, uh, turmoil, um, we see a lot of the conflict. I've, I've seen it within organizations as well. When we get into this us versus them, uh, I just, I feel like I see contempt in a lot of places now. And I think that's fascinating, uh, just as an observation, it's unfortunate as well, but it's also convicting. And so, you know, a lot of times these conversations are sure you could, you could listen to them and process them as a non-believer. Um, but as a believer, I I lament because I, I don't I've never heard a sermon on contempt and I think it's pretty easy to either justify your anger or excuse your pride but contempt kind of wiggles its wiggles its way through the both of those and and I think it's an important thing to just process more because you don't see a difference a strong difference at least I don't with believers and non-believers in terms of how we view others with contempt I mean, by and large, uh, at least. So, um, I, I'd like to, to just start with why why is contempt important? Why is where do you see that as being contemptuous does not align with our faith? Because again, I just I haven't quite heard a sermon on that, and you've hinted it before. But could you could you start us off there? Well, Pat, that's one of the most stupid questions I've ever heard. <laughs> so there's contempt for it. <laughs> I thought we'd do a little illustration before we begin. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, I didn't give it much thought until um, I had the opportunity to sit under Dallas Willard for a week in a course, and uh, I thought he teased it out marvelously and um, began to get in touch with how, uh, you know, at times, contempt has contaminated my life. And um, so... Uh, Jesus talks about it, and uh, and it's actually the uh, regression or it's the deterioration of uh, anger. Now, so I'm going to quote Dr. Willard here, but anger in and of itself is not necessarily bad, but best avoided. So to be, um, so God is angry. Uh, in fact, if Reports are true. Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, were used in some remarkable ways in the colonies uh, to bring about uh, repentance and uh, people expressing great remorse for their contempt. But set that aside. Anger is, uh, I mean, we all experience anger. There's nothing necessarily wrong with it. There's been a lot ballyhooed about uh, righteous anger. And certainly, uh, when Jesus goes in and clears out the temple, he's angry. That's fascinating. When you stop, I didn't think about this. 
by the way, listeners, none of these thoughts are really prepared. Oh, they can tell. But, they can tell. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> yeah, because they're you know they're unplugging right and left. You know, what is this guy? What is his problem? But uh, so where were we? Yeah, back in the uh, temple. It's so, there's a couple of places that are alluded to throughout the uh, Old Testament that uh, Jerusalem is often depicted as uh, is God's bride. And the temple, the heart of that bride. Uh, the, and so it's fascinating, first, that when God sends his people into exile, the language he uses is that he's divorcing her. And in fact, even you read in there these devastating his bride. Uh, and one of the ways is the temple is destroyed. Now, as you know, they come out over several hundred years, they rebuild the temple. They always lament it was never as great as Solomon's. When Jesus comes to uh, institute the new covenant, which he says now to his bride, I will be in you, you'll notice that in the Jews rejecting that because of their contempt for Jesus, contempt so strong that they would conspire some to have him killed that God again destroys the temple. That's just some fascinating um, about, so in a, in a sort of a predicting of what's going to happen, he comes and clears out the temple because a place which is supposed to be for communing with God, Judah's husband, Israel's husband, place of prayer, he said, you turn it into a den of thieves. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating that there's a place for anger. And the anger is how uh, either the bride is desecrated, the earth is desecrated. Um, so there's a place for anger. The trick is, it's really a fine line because to, where you become overly righteous. So that's what I'd like to suggest if we're going to if we go into contempt is the most common thing at least in my tiny teeny teeny tiny experience in god's family is we sort of assume the problem of contempt is out there and i was remarking to someone this week you know two-thirds of the new testament is written to correct problems in here in the church. So it, it, it raises the question, and again, and, and Christ is talking about contempt that he saw in the Jewish leaders at that time. But it's very easy for us to think, yeah, those daggum Jewish leaders, how could they miss it? And uh, yeah, contempt, it's really, really bad. Those idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've done that. And, and uh, but you just see, uh, so much of uh, the New Testament is written to try to wake up believers that the problem is not out there, it's in here. It's what I call you know, pogo Christianity. We have met the enemy and he is us. Um, and, and so contempt is something that I do see in, uh, in the kingdom. And uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, but the, it, it starts with it starts with something which is can be virtuous, anger. God gets angry. We become angry. And all vices are virtues that have gone south. In other words, Pat, if you think about it, the old adage is evil in and of itself does not exist. It is a corruption of a good thing. So it is all things were created and all things are good. God did not create evil. Evil is a bastard combination of good things that goes south. <clears throat> the, the easiest example is if you like your car to be shiny and clean, if it rust. So what is rust? What's the, it's the only thing I remember from chemistry. What's the uh, chemical equation for rust? 
Uh, iron and oxygen. There you go. I think it's called iron oxide, something like that. FO2. Thank you. See, that's the only thing I remember from chemistry. I looked at the chemist, that chemical chart, that chart, what is it called? The elements? Table, yeah. Table elements. I said, who in heaven's name came up with that? <laughs> <laughs> they say it's logically ordered. I never quite understood it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it's not intuitively ordered. Let's put it that way. That's right. So uh, iron, good thing. Oxygen, really good thing. But in the wrong combination, you get rust. And so... Contempt is actually uh, a good thing, two good things, and you see it in righteous anger. Now, here's what I mean. So Jesus takes anger, and he, but he talks about that anger can continue, will deteriorate if it's not careful, if you're not careful with it, into contempt. And here's how it works. But actually, the best book on that, listeners, is Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Jonathan Haidt, who has some really good uh, TED Talks, by the way. Uh, secular atheist is how he describes himself. And yet, I would urge you to read his book, The Righteous Mind, How Politics and Religion Divide Us. Here's what's... Uh, so helpful about righteous mind. Hate will uh, point out there are about five markers for what makes for a flourishing society. Um, conservatives get some better and liberals get others better. But on balance, conservatives actually had the better um, track record and, and understand some of these things better. So here's a liberal atheist tipping his hat to conservatives saying they actually get more things right. So what's the problem? The problem is, without quoting scripture, he says that uh, it's easy to become overly righteous, excessively righteous. Now that comes straight out of the Psalms, where the psalmist wrote, do not be excessively righteous. Why would you destroy yourself? What do you think the psalmist meant by that? So uh, that's that's a hard question. I I think my immediate thought, and, and I'm sure many would be, well, how? I mean, righteous righteousness is is a good thing. To be righteous is good. How can you be excessively righteous? And how does that lead to destroying yourself? I'm not I'm not sure. Well, better study your Bible and <laughs> God is righteous, but God is also absolute. And uh, so we know made in his image because God is love. Maturity is coming to love the things God loves in the order in which he loves them. So we've talked a bit about this before. And Jesus kicks the game off or actually... God, Father, Son, Spirit, kick the game off. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Number three, number four, number five. Here's why it's important, Pat. Gustin said it well. He said, my, my weight is my loves. My weight is my loves. Wherever my uh, the loves take me, there, there I go. And that's from the confessions. Now in the Enchitaran, he went on to say, therefore, if we ask if someone's a good person, we can say a righteous person. We do not ask what he believes or what he hopes, but what he loves. Now that came at the end of his uh, long, long letter to a friend named Lawrence uh, after he had unpacked and parsed the Corinthians passage, faith, hope, and love, these three. But Augustine makes this remarkable comment in the end. So, Pat, if we ask if whether or not you're a righteous person, we don't ask what you believe. We don't ask what you hope. We ask what you love. 
What do you think Augustine was getting at? What you love also has a pretty strong effect on what you believe and what you uh, hope. That's it. Exactly. What you love, the order of your loves. Because as Paul wrote, God created all things to be enjoyed. They're all inherently good. That includes righteousness. That includes good wine. We talked before we got on, <clears throat> good espresso versus bad espresso. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good conversation. Uh, we're to love affluence. We're to love intelligence. We're to love good music. We're to love the environment. I'm to love Kathy, my wife. The challenge in growing up is loving the things God loves in the order in which he loves them. If, now we know the first two are non-negotiable. Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, love your neighbor. Number three, mm, question mark. It's probably different for every person. For example, number three, for me, Kathy. If you love Kathy, number three, Pat, you and I need to have a talking. <laughs> uh, number four, five, we're to love our work. We're to, so you get the point. So let's just, you know, yeah, maybe uh, love doing yard work and having dominion in the, the backyard. Maybe that's number 59. Um, I mean, I'm using it in that kind of bald terms to give you this idea. These, these loves after number two are dynamic. They can go up and down uh, depending on your station in life and your calling. Now, if you love something more than God loves it, in the Bible it's called idolatry. But if you love something less than God loves it, it's called ignorance. Idolatry or ignorance. God blesses neither. For example, not too long ago, <clears throat> I was with someone and they were saying they wanted to do well in the work and make enough money so they could one day go into business or go into ministry, rather. In other words, they don't love their work because they don't see it in any way as being a ministry because it's secular. In the Bible, it's called ignorance, not loving the work that he's doing in the same way that God loves it. And that ought to move up in his order of loves to actually loving his, his work in and of itself, but not as a platform for ministry, platform for evangelism, or platform to build big enough barns that one day you can stuff enough money in the barn and then go off and do what you really want to do, quote, ministry. You get it. On the other side of the coin, that's ignorance. A lot of that today in the church, today. But there's also idolatry. Now, the difference between the two is ignorance can be more easily addressed and corrected than idolatry because idols blind us. Idolatry is, are we to love righteousness, Pat? Yes. But you can love it too much. You can love it too much because to make it absolute is to pretend you're God. Mm. Only God there it is. Mm. is absolutely righteous. We're to love it with a bit of humility that says, but this is like playing with dynamite. I mean, righteous? You can be excessively righteous the bible says and ruin yourself because you love righteousness as a being created in the image of god more than god loves righteousness for a being made in the image of god you can love righteousness more than you love god 
Hmm. Interesting because I mean, they're that's that's Lucifer, right? Like the there idea of go. yeah, if you love righteousness more than God, it's it's almost like you love the idea of being like God more than you like God, and then here we are back back to the original uh, fall in pre-creation time. Yeah, man, I, I'll be honest, I, I really do. I have chill bumps right now um, because what you said is is exactly right. I mean, now we're back to, I mean, they talk about, uh, we talk about original sin. That's not original sin. When That's original, that's not even original sin. You know, Adam and Eve, that's not original sin. You, you just said original sin, Pat. And it goes back to claiming excessive righteousness i will ascend on i i will be like i will seven times mm -hmm. which often denotes kind of a completeness this is completely wrapped around i'm righteous and he's god wow i mean <laughs> when that's that's often one of the frequent complaints I hear when people uh, talk about frustrations towards Christianity or religious conservatives is is that that idea of uh, well look at how they treat homosexuals look at how they treat X and uh, and yeah it's often very very strong evidence of contempt. Yes, so contempt comes straight from Lucifer and his contempt for God, which resulted in a, his ruin and the ruin of one-third of the angelic realm. It's fascinating, the lectionary readings as we head into the season of preparation and penitence called Lent, that uh, we've been taken through Revelation. Fascinating the number of times since the judgments have got to come. One-third of this wiped out. One-third will be wiped out. One-third will be wiped out. One-third will be wiped out. What's this one-third stuff all about? Well, as you and I both know, and you know, and from reading Ezekiel and Isaiah, but after this great war in heavens, before there was time and history and earth, these angels lost this one third of the angelic realm, which we have no idea how huge it is, but I bet you it's pretty mind boggling. And they're, they're ruined, they're fallen, irredeemable. And it says they're cast to the earth. So all this original sin and contempt is quarantined on the earth. That's why we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. Something's lurking in the bushes. It's chaos. Now that chaos would have never been uncorked if it wasn't for the original couple eating of the apple. So it was uncorked. Contempt, uncorked. Now Lucifer is bright as all get out. So he's not stupid, doesn't go around in a red tail, in a red suit. In fact, we read in the book of Revelation, he has one great scheme in life, one narrow, heinous, hideous focus. You know what that is? Revelation 12? No. Lie. Deceit. I don't know. It's even bigger. What did he do in eternity past? What did he foment? A war, a rebellion. Mm. It says he lives to make war against the offspring of Mary. 
Mm, the old dragon. and mm. That's right. Yeah. The bride of Christ. He lives to do one thing. I'm destroyed, but I'm going to destroy that damn bride. C.S. Lewis did a nice, clever way of addressing some of this in the screw tape letters. So if some of you haven't read that. He takes you inside this realm where the, everything they see they're doing is righteous. It's fascinating, fun, fun book to read, but also just a good way to go. Hmm. That's a different way to look at it. So you have an entire... I mean, this room that I'm in is populated with spiritual beings, good and bad. And uh, now the bad have no power anymore unless I give it to them. Unless I give them dominion. And you begin to open the door with anger. Just begin. You have to open it wider to let them in. But so therefore to be angry is in and of itself not bad. But Jesus talks about that it, it, it can grow, it can be nurtured, my lovely, because it does feel good. It can feel good because it, it has goodness in it, but it can feel too good. And it deteriorates, and Jesus said, into contempt. And contempt, <clears throat> for example, he said, even if you call someone racha, you are guilty of the lake of fire, of the, of the pit of hell. What? Racha means you moron. Why? Doesn't that sound a bit extreme? <laughs> sure. Except, how did God create? He spoke language. So apparently words have enormous, enormous power for creating. We are sub-creators, as, as some people have put it. We're not the creator, but we're sub-creators. So God takes Adam, has him name the animals. So in that unfallen state, it's good, but the power is, that's a dog, that's a cat, that's a llama, that's a llama's pajamas, um, all that jazz. That was a joke, Pat. Uh, <laughs> I, think it's a, I think it's a book, isn't it? Yeah, llama, llama. Anyway. <laughs> Let me write so, that down for the show notes here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Can laughter, insert laughter track right here from Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's inherently good. So literally, in this podcast, we are part of what's happening throughout the, uh, the uh, planet, is we are stuffing the planet with words. And those words are part, but not completely uh, the cause of uh, the creation of cultures. And so Jesus says in Matthew 12, Every careless word you utter, you will give an account of in the last judgment. Wow. Every careless word. So, that's... so to call someone a moron, <laughs> let's go back, yeah. why... Why does that incur? Why does that make you? You could be guilty of damnation. Why? Because that person also was made in the image of God. That's right. Yeah. But what you've just fallen for is how Lucifer sees people. Idiots. Morons. Easily duped. It's contemptuous. That 
you got a good point about you grieve and lament. I do well. I do too. Is um, <clears throat> first of all, none of us are innocent of this. Um, you know, we we um, we only do it because it feels good, because our loves are disordered. That's why it says in Hebrews that Moses. It's a great picture of the Redeemer because he said he forsook the passing pleasures of sin. I often tell my friends, you get a lot further with God if you, when you confess, you sin. here's why I sinned. I liked it. I loved it. It felt good. Now, I gravitated to it. That's Augustine's word there. I wait, the Latin word is gravitas. It's the idea, if you imagine the solar system, your loves are like the sun in the center of the solar system. It has the strongest gravitational pull in our universe. So it governs the orbits of everything else. Your loves govern the orbit, the orbits of your hopes and your beliefs. I mean, a, 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 a couple of examples that are just so sad to read, but does give fire, fuel for the fire of Lucifer and our critics is, so two weeks ago we read about it, I mean, very very uh, growing the whole Hillsong Church thing and the pastor admits he's had this affair, extramarital affair. And then we had the, one of the largest mega churches in the country you know, two years ago. And the pastor steps down for alleged sexual activities and so you go, hmm. But he gave some great sermons on uh, sex. That's right, those are his beliefs. But uh, obviously, what governed his life were his loves, and his loves were disordered. Now, none of us here are, are exempt from that. My loves are disordered. And uh, I still think, for example, the holiness clubs way back at Oxford Wesley and the like, if you ever pull up their questions and re read the questions, or even Wilberforce's, William Wilberforce's letter to his 13-year-old daughter Elizabeth, they're all built around the notion that uh, you've got to have crap detectors, that would be the word I'd use, but if you want a more polite phrase, it would be the friendly reproofs of outsiders and friends who will point out your loves are disordered. That's what Wilberforce told his daughter. You got it. He hoped by the time she was 13, she would have accustomed herself to the habit of self-suspicion. So, Pat, to get back to contempt, when you're excessively righteous, those people are prone to contempt, and they do not have self-suspicion. Then maybe they're off. And this afflicts conservative and liberal. That's Jonathan Haidt's point. The righteous mind. How politics and religion divide us. Now, by the way, isn't that fascinating? You mentioned those two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. Why? Why? Why not? How business and uh, movies? <laughs> Why those two? Hmm. I mean, yeah, because righteousness definitely seems more prevalent in those. Yeah, Obviously why is religion, that? But, but politics even too. And, and maybe politics speaks a little bit to how the world ought to run and our understanding of society. So there's a piece there. Yeah, um, very good. Yeah. Very good. I mean, this is, so here's a couple of our, Laments. Okay, here, listeners, we're going into the lament section of our podcast. <laughs> but 
But uh, these are part of the laments. Uh, and, and this is where I think that uh, James Hunter's book, To Change the World, this part of it is actually helpful reading. It's three parts to the book. The second essay is the tragedy. And the tragedy is we are all made in the image of God to make cultures. For the last 200 years, that notion that comes out of Genesis is evangelicals are not particularly familiar with it. They tend to emphasize more the Great Commission. But rightly understood, the Great Commission is a reiteration of the cultural mandate. So if you're not familiar with the mandate, you're not going to be familiar with the this imprint that on the DNA on every person on the planet, which is to make cultures, which to your point, but what you just said so beautifully is it, that requires the coming together of cities and communities. And so I, I lament, we lament that so many Christians say, ooh, politics, we're not into politics. You know, we live, I live here in, in Annapolis, Anna, polis, the Greek word, city, city of Anne. Politics is how you create cities. And the, one of the macro themes in, in the whole Bible is it starts in a garden, ends in a city, ends in Jerusalem. City of peace. Cities are inherently good uh, and, and beneficial. And so politics is inherently good and beneficial. And we have Christians saying, I'm not into politics. Okay, well, nature abhors a vacuum. You know who's going to get into politics? People who turn it into what's called politicization. Now, that's a long term, so we lose a bunch of people with that phrase. Politicization is loving politics. It's making politics into an idol. It's loving it too much. So Hunter's book will point out properly that Christians who who are shrewd enough to know that we don't have near the influence that we had at one time in this country, but don't know how to build cultural capital, then see the solution is get the right guy in office. Right woman, man, doesn't matter. The point is, if we could just get this person to be president, if we could just get these people in the Senate, if we could just get these judges, then we'll make the faith great again. That's called politicization. And what you fall, what they fall into, Christian and those who are not people of faith, but invariably fall into politicization views the other side with contempt. Welcome to America 2020. Yeah. Yeah. We see it all around. And I, I think what's interesting there is one of the most frustrating things you've done to me, Mike, is after talking about contempt and seeing that more in my life, I've realized just about every single time I go out driving, I am contemptuous. And it's ruined. Don't blame me. Let's blame, <laughs> let's blame Dr. Willard and he would blame Jesus. So take it back to the source. You know, it sounds, it sounds silly, but uh, the, the most frequent times that moron comes out of my mouth, it's when I'm driving. And it's yeah. in those moments that now, before moron was followed by anger, and now moron is followed by this like deep seated conviction. I'm like, dang it, Mike. <laughs> but it's but it is it's it's uh, like I think two large examples. You either look at at Trump. Many will look at him and go, well, he's the definition of contemptuous. And others will look at him and go, well, yeah, but everything he's doing is valid and and righteous, and you know, it's it's the means the ends justify the means. That's and, right. And. Uh, I think on both sides, on both perspectives, the seed of contempt is is alive and well. And so that's where I, I just challenge pe people who look at him and go, oh, he's the definition of contemptuous. Well, on a large, massive scale, I imagine if you have seeds of contemptuous, you wouldn't be much different. And that's, I think, the difference. So when I'm driving and I'm calling someone a moron because of how they just interacted with me on the road, 
that doesn't that doesn't make me uh, any more uh, righteous uh, than than someone who's on the massive political stage leading the the country. And that that's I think the the deep lament I have, which is we we sort of just ignore these small little seeds and and think ourselves better than we truly are. And that's yeah. that's tough. That's that's really tough. And and to your point earlier, it, like if if many would sit back and recognize that we may hate other people less. <laughs> we, that's right. We we may find ourselves actually the culprit. And that's again, it sounds kind of silly, but I I really I, I you've convinced me that when I get to the gates of heaven, God's going to ask me to account for and to give an account for all the times I've been driving and looking at someone else as if they're a moron. And I don't, I don't think he's going to say, Oh yeah, but that that's, you get a pass for that. That was just silly and small. Yeah. I really don't. Exactly. Right. The, um, I reflect regularly on the, uh, remember in the Proverbs and the Psalms, where you have the incident of the man's looking in the, and here's a, uh, we used to be a thriving, probably a vineyard, and uh, the walls broken down, the vineyards, the whole place is, it's obviously just been, just gone to pot, and uh, nothing left. And he asked for wisdom, and there came to him a voice from the heavens, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. In other words, a little, you moron, a little, <laughs> what the hell's wrong with you? A little, and these things build up. It's exactly right, Pat. It builds up, and it starts with the, as simple as uh, uh, standing in the grocery line, and or for me, uh, being at Sam's recently, and these two, you know, morons don't know how to work their credit card and the self-serve gas. Come on, people, <laughs> and. Um, by the way, um, since this is our podcast, we can we won't go much into this, but it should, it's worth mentioning this rise in contempt. Also, I think parallels the rise of the F word, mm. hmm. which can you see why? I mean, I see a connection to to the profane for sure. Where where's the connection to contempt? Yeah, what is it profane? Well, if you're not clear on that, I don't know you know, how you ever made babies. <laughs> sure, I mean, I mean, yeah, it's, it is interesting because it 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 takes sex and uh, well, yeah, that's actually really fascinating. I hadn't thought about that, but essentially, if if you're saying to someone "f you" in particular, that's one thing. But obviously, there's more of an exclamatory approach to it today but even f you is uh that's turning sex into an act of rape i mean in, in the language piece of it that's right you have to ask why does it have power I mean, yeah. why why is it different than saying uh, blue you right right blue like blue red pink uh, uh, what are you trying to insult me uh, try again <laughs> uh, i only say it because while we're doing this podcast i'm looking right over here uh so christopher west his new book i if you've never heard of Christopher, or if you have, this is the best book he's written, in my opinion. Um, it's called Our Bodies Tell God's Story. And he goes back to more ancient church traditions of a what he calls a marital view of salvation, or a spousal view of salvation, that it was God marrying us. Because we fell at the cross, not only did he, were we betrothed, or we were betrothed, because like in the story of Boaz and Ruth, we were redeemed, but it's both and. In today's understanding the gospel, Christopher points out, it's not a spousal view of salvation, it's a sin view of salvation, that all that happened on the cross is our sins are paid for. Of course, that raised the question. So if that's the gospel, the good news, there was no good news before we fell. But, that's another podcast. There was good news in eternity past. Before the creation of all this, God deemed we were created to be married. Now, because of that, Pat, 
this gospel is best told in our bodies, particularly in nuptial union. And there's the power of the F word. That's why it profanes the most powerful picture of the gospel and why you were created. F you. Yeah, we've, we've talked heavily about the profane before. I think that was a great conversation. And, uh, and I think it's, it's just interesting thinking about contempt in that, that realm as well. Well, well, it is because yeah, it ahead. is because I've had a couple of conversations this week, and you know, one was from a dear friend from many years ago, and, but he was just calling because he's really been wrestling, struggling with pornography, and uh, I alluded to it in a recent column, and you know, sixty percent of evangelical men, forty percent of women, some some percentage like that, thirty-seven percent of pastors, uh, you know, porn addiction. You got to ask yourself. How's that? Ha- why is that happening? Well, Christopher's book and others would say it's because we have a disembodied faith. The only purpose of our body is to carry our brain around. And if we think right, then we'll act right. And uh, so I said to my friend, I want to recommend some things for you to do because you didn't think your way into this problem. So you, you can't just think your way out of it. So it's fine you're talking with men, trying to be held accountable, but you're going to see limited success. In the same way, see, contempt, if the gospel is best told in our body, and in our bodies, we create cultures as well as what we name, and we vacate the space of making flourishing cultures, you're going to have cultures that prize and love contempt. And if we think with our bodies, as the Hebrews thought, correctly, we're going to think, we're going to be contemptuous without even thinking about it. And the problem is, is what the Bible calls us an idol. And an idol, remember the famous story in the Old Testament, nobody likes to have their idol knocked over. You'll rush out in the morning and pick it back up. And you also say to the person who knocked it over, who the hell are you? Well, you got it exactly wrong. It's not, hell's not involved in it from the other end. It's someone who sees that you become idolatrous. So contempt is a real savage beast on so many levels because it is fueled not exclusively but somewhat by a real savage beast who hates the bride just seethes with hatred and so if he could get his the the church not his church obviously the church to be so wrapped around the axle of being politicized that's different than politics politics is in and of itself is good it's a lot like saying alcohol in and of itself is good alcoholism is not politics in and of itself is good we ought to be involved politicization is like politicism it's it's schismatic it's contemptuous it's why we be hard pressed to find a moderate anymore of the 535 elected representatives they get pilloried in the press and the press fuels contempt fuels it and no no paper is exempt man i try to read both sides of issues but it's hard to read you know, there are those writers that have just one thing to do. It's just basically week after week. Um, Trump is an idiot. Now, I find a lot in it that is very grievous. And he is a contemptuous. And he rallies a base by that. But he, first of all, he's, he's past tense now. And second, um, 
the solution is not to be contemptuous, contemptuous of him. This is not, you don't fight fire with fire. Not in, not in the kingdom. You fight fire with love, properly ordered loves that yield wisdom. And I think in the political realm, wisdom seems to be in a bit of short supply right now. And that's why hate, so it's Jonathan Haight, why religion and politics divide us. And let me just point out one thing too, because we're in sort of our pop, that pop theology, I call it, in the church today. I'm getting a little tired of hearing, hey, we're not into religion, we're into a relationship with God. And I joke with them, well, you know, you're going to have a little trouble with James when you first meet him in eternity. Because <laughs> he wrote religion, pure religion is doing these things, you know, the widow, the orphan, the vulnerable. And we forget religion comes from the Latin religio, ligament. Ligaments bind tissues, muscle and bone. Uh, if you played sports, you sure appreciate your ligaments. And if you tear one, you find out, wow, they're vital. So religion is to re is the design of religion is continually rebind us to who we ought to be because we are inherently wanderers. So why in heaven's name would we decapitate or why would we kneecap our, our tradition by saying we're not into religion? We're not into bad religion. But we are a religion because the human race has to be rebound continually returning to what it ought to be. That's the role of religion, which would include religion, which would include politics, and which would include anger, if necessary, is uh, rightly loving it for its whatever virtuous aspect it has at a certain point, cleansing a temple, temple, but also hearing from others when we perhaps love it too much and have made it an idol. And then we are right in the suburbs of contempt. And Jesus said, you're right in the suburbs of the pit. 